Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's interesting how many of those people, when asked why they don't read the Bible, they were quick to judge why the Bible was wrong, but they'd never read it. And secondly, their source of authority was where? Within themselves. So let me ask you a question this morning. What's your opinion of the Bible? How do you receive God's Word? You know, that's a very important question because we live in a culture that does not want to accept this book as an authority, as a source of truth. Look into some of the responses we heard on the video. It's old-fashioned. It doesn't make sense. It's archaic. It's outdated. It's boring. It doesn't apply to my life. Now, we'd expect those types of responses from non-Christians, right? But what about us who are Christians? Here's a fundamental question. Do we give lip service to this Word of God, or do we live under the authority of this Word of God in every area of our lives? It's a question this morning about how are you going to relate to God's Word. Last week, as we've been going on this adventure in the book of Acts, we saw God plant a church in Philippi, the Philippian church. How did he do that? He opened the eyes of a heart. He opened Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel. Then we saw how he saved this little snake girl. You remember? She had a python demon spirit. She was in, in prison to, her, to a demon. God released her. And then God saved the Philippian jailer. And they began meeting in Lydia's home. And God planted this church in great power, the church in Philippi. And then the Philippian jailer asked that question, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul said, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you will be saved. But we know what happens, right? Paul and Silas are escorted out of town. They're told, don't come back. So where do they go? They go to the next city, the largest city in the area, the metropolitan, or the metropolis of Macedonia, the city of Thessalonica. And we see the planting of the church in Thessalonica. Paul devotes two letters to the Thessalonians. We've got 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And if God is going to plant a church in Thessalonica, yes, it's going to come through the power of the gospel. Yes, it's going to come through opening people's hearts. Yes, it's going to come by salvation. But the fundamental question in Thessalonica all centers around how are they going to respond? How are they going to receive the Word of God. How will they respond to God's Word? So let's see this unfold. Last week it was Philippi. This week, Thessalonica. Let's look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, and let's continue to see Paul's journey as he goes to these different cities to plant churches, to spread the gospel, to be a missionary to the Gentile world. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving 
that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. This is Thessalonica, a very strategic city, the largest city in that area. And what was Paul's custom? What was Paul's missionary method? We've seen it week to week. When he goes into a new town, where does he go first? He goes to the Jewish synagogue as a way to get a hearing from the Jewish people since they had a background with the Old Testament and that's what he does. His method is to go into the synagogue. So he goes into the synagogue as was his custom. He spends three Sabbath days there doing something very, very important. It's all about the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Now obviously the New Testament hasn't been written at this point. So what Paul is doing is he's going to talk about the Old Testament scriptures and how these Old Testament scriptures point to Christ. So his method is to go into the synagogue. Let's look closer at his method and see what, in fact, he's doing. Notice in verse 2, he went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned. This word really in the original language means he had a dialogue. He had a conversation. It wasn't like he stood up and preached like I'm doing now with no feedback. It was more like he was engaging in a dialogue, a give and take, where they could ask questions. He was basically opening up the Old Testament. He was reading the Old Testament. He was stopping. He was explaining. He was giving them opportunity to ask questions. And verse 3 tells us more specifically how he engages in this dialogue how he engages in this questioning of the scriptures. What's the first thing we see in verse 3? How does this happen? Explaining. Explaining. That word means he opened up the text. He exposed the text. He read the text. He, he opened it up to them. He, he took great pains to show what was actually there. He's doing exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus rose from the dead... And he was on the road to Emmaus with those two apostles, those two disciples. What did Jesus do? Luke 24, 25 through 7. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what does that sound like? The Old Testament scriptures, what did Jesus do? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He interpreted. Same word that's used here for, for, for explaining. He interpreted for them. If you go on down in that passage, verses 44 through 47, 
In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, wait, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, make sure I get all five in there, the prophets, I can't list all the prophets, and the Psalms, which was a category for all of the, 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 the wisdom writing, must be fulfilled. So he talks about the whole Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. Same thing that Paul is doing here. He's opening the text. So just a side note, okay? This should be very basic, but I got to say it. If you're in a Bible study and you never open the Bible and study it, it's not a Bible study. It may be a good discussion group, but here's what often happens in Bible studies, right? It's pooled ignorance. What happens? Everybody goes around the circle. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? I could care less what it means to you. It means something, and that's what it means. And so when you do Bible study, we've got to open the scriptures and read. And that's what Paul's doing. He's explaining. He's opening. But also, notice what else he's doing. It says there in verse 3, he was proving. Not only was he explaining, was he opening, but he was proving. Now, it's interesting, that word proving in the original language, means to place side by side. What he was doing was he was going to the Old Testament, placing it next to the events of Christ side by side and showing how the Old Testament predicted and prophesied and was fulfilled by Christ in the New, side by side. That's Paul's method. It's rigorous. It's this dialogue. I mean, the people are skeptical. They needed to have the scriptures explained, open, interpreted, reason. He's reasoning. He's, he's engaging in this dialogue. He's, he's working real hard with these people to try to get them to see the truth of the scriptures in relation to how the Old Testament speaks about Christ's fulfillment of all those things that were prophesied about him. Now that's his method, proving, explaining, opening, working hard. Now, what's his message? His message is very basic. Look at the the rest of verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. Notice he says, proving that it is necessary. In the original language, that word necessary means it was a predetermined, predestined, fixed event on God's calendar that must take place. In other words, these things that were in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. And Paul goes and shows them how these things had to happen. And he talks about three things. His message is very simple. Three things. Number one, Jesus dies on the cross. Notice what he says there. Proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer. So he probably took all those Old Testament passages that talk about the suffering of Christ. Now you can go back and read these. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, a lot of the, the passages in Leviticus that talk about the Day of Atonement and the priesthood and all those things. He's probably going back and showing them side by side how Christ fulfills that. And then secondly, the resurrection. How it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then rise from the dead. So he talks about the resurrection. And then thirdly, he talks about the kingship of Christ. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised king that was talked about. He's the, the future son of David. He, he's, the, he's the suffering Christ. He's the risen Christ. He's the king Christ. And so what does Paul do? For three weeks... 
In the Jewish synagogue, he reasons, he opens, he explains, he re-explains, he goes painstakingly to try to show them and prove and reason with them that these things were true. And what's the response? We see two responses to Paul when he does this. Here's the first response. Some of them were persuaded. Not a huge following. In other words, after all this reasoning and proving and explaining, these Jews who were in the synagogue basically didn't really receive his message. Just some were persuaded. It didn't bear much fruit. Now we see the Greeks accepted it, and a lot of leading women of the city accepted it, but these Jews in the synagogue, they were skeptical. Some accepted it. So that's the first response Paul gets, is a a skeptical, not a lot of fruit, some. What's the second response he gets? A mob riot. I've told you that. You know what happens every time Paul goes into a town? Either revival or riots. Here, here we got it. What happened? These Jews of the city get really, really mad. Look at verse 5. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. I don't know what your translation says. Here's a little translation in the Greek. Low lives. Layabouts. Some day workers who had nothing better to do than to sit around in the city square and to be provoked into having this mob riot to where they got instigated to go in an uproar, ransack this guy Jason's house looking for Paul. They turn his house upside down. They drag him to the city officials. It is a mob scene, a mob riot. Here's the irony. Look at verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here and done also. That terminology, turn the world upside down, really means Paul and Silas are starting a revolution. Paul and Silas are starting a mob. Paul and Silas are are overthrowing the government. Did Paul and Silas ever do that? No. Here's the irony. The Jews that were accusing Paul and Silas of doing that, are they themselves doing that? They're causing a mob. They're causing this ransacking. And here's what the issue was. They they were trying to pervert the message of the gospel. They were saying, oh, Paul and Silas are talking about this other king. There's this other king they're talking about. His name's Jesus. But but there's really only one king. That's Caesar. You see, Thessalonica was a Roman colony. And so what they were basically saying is that that these men are coming to try to, to prop up another king, another monarch besides Caesar. Now, in reality, that's true, right? Jesus is king. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords caesar would not have any power on the throne unless jesus had given it to him but that's not paul and silas's message they're not coming in and making it a political issue they're talking about his kingship overall but they're not saying that there's another king that's on the level with caesar and so they're they're kind of manipulating the scene here to make it look like paul and silas are trying to be a political threat to the nation or to the city and basically jason has to pay post bail he has to post bail to get these guys off his back And what do Paul and Silas do? They hightail it in the middle of the night down to the next town, Berea. Now, what do we learn about this in our context today? We receive the same two kind of responses when we present the gospel, when we talk about the Bible, when we open the scriptures. First of all, it may take a long time for people to truly accept what it is we are saying. There's a lot of people in our culture that are so far removed from the Bible, they have no clue. They've got baggage. They've never read the Bible. They don't understand who God is as creator. They don't understand sin. They don't understand Jesus. And so we need to help them to see those things. In our nation, 
In the past, most people in our culture had a Judeo-Christian worldview in the past. doesn't mean every single person was a Christian, but it did mean that maybe 50 years ago, people had the categories, okay? They had the categories of who God was. They had categories of sin. They knew the Ten Commandments. They had categories of Jesus. They, they had the categories in culture at large in America. But that's no longer the case. We are living in a culture where people are biblically illiterate. They don't have the categories. Listen to how many people up there said, I've never even read the Bible. They have no clue what we're talking about when we start opening up the Bible. And it's, it's dangerous for us to get them to say a little sinner's prayer or walk an aisle and try to somehow rush the process when they're coming with so much distance to the Scriptures. Some people have no Christian history. They have no Christian history. They've never been told a Bible story. You talk about Jonah and the big fish, they look at you with a blank stare. You talk about sin, they have no concept what sin is. You talk about God, well, is that God, God-S? Is that something that Oprah talks about? Who is God? They don't understand the need for repentance, faith. So we can't take for granted that everybody in our culture thinks and knows the same things we know. So we've got to go slow like Paul does, sometimes painstakingly slow. We may need to open, reread, explain, defend, pray, then re-explain. So that's, that's one uh, of the things that we, ha- that we have to go through. We have to plow. Now, I'm not a farmer. Some of you are. Many of you are farmers. And I'm, I'm not up here to speak as an expert about, about farming, but I do know this. Don't you have to plow the ground to get it ready? I know dry land... Uh, farming is different than other types of farming. But there's some type of plowing to get the, the soil ready for the seed, right? In our culture, there may have to be a lot more plowing of the ground to get people ready for the seed of the gospel. Whereas in days past, in cultures past, when people had the categories, when people had, the, had the, at least the Judeo-Christian worldview, you could come in at a revival service and preach the gospel, and a lot of people may respond because they had the history. Nowadays, people don't have that history. It's going to take more plowing of their souls. Okay, what's the other response that people give you when you start opening up the Word of God? It may take time for them to get to know it, but what's the other response that Paul gets? A mob. Sometimes people are just going to flat out hate what you say. They're not going to agree with the Bible. They're going to say it's an old book, it's an outdated book, it's an archaic book, it's, it's oppressive, it's discriminatory, it makes no sense. They're going to ransack your ideas. They're going to ransack you. They may, they may mob you with objections to the Scriptures. Now what I'm about to show you on the screen is not in your notes. After the service, my, my sermon manuscripts are out on the table This drawing will be on the table, on the sermon manuscript. I will put it up online. But I want to show you a graphic here. And I want to talk to you about how the gospel moves through cultures. Not how individual people receive the gospel, but how does the gospel move through cultures and people groups? What this is, is this is about 12 years of missions training, seminary training, personal um, experience with it. So what I want you to do is, is to, we're going to go through how does the gospel move through cultures, okay? So if there's a people group or a culture out there, how does the gospel move through it? Well, first of all, on there, you've got a culture that is what we call pre-Christian, 
This is what the Bogota peoples of India would be, pre-Christian. They have no idea. They have no Christian history. There's no Bible. There's no missionary. They're in total darkness. We don't even sometimes know who these people are, where these people are. These are the darkest of the dark. They have no concept of the Bible. They don't have it translated in their language. They have never heard of Jesus. They are what we call a pre-Christian culture. Okay, what happens then is, is next it becomes unreached. We know about this culture like the Bogota of India. We go into this culture, we go into this people group, and we find out that there's no church, there's no missionary, there's no resources to evangelize, there's no Bible translated in their language, there's very few, if any, believers at all. So it's an unreached people. We've least identified them. Okay, here's what happens next. Let's say some missionaries go in there or some people start sharing the gospel. Then you have what's called unevangelized. It's unevangelized. So now there may be churches, there may be Christians, but the majority of the culture does not have the resources to hear the gospel. Okay, so you've got a culture where the gospel's going out, okay? There may be a few churches here or there, but it's unevangelized in that the majority of the culture's never heard the gospel. They've never heard a gospel presentation. They are unevangelized. There may be churches there, there may be Christians there, but they're unevangelized. Okay, what happens then is when people start hearing the gospel, when churches are planted, when people start going out with the gospel, then the culture becomes what we call evangelized. An evangelized culture means that the majority of the people in that culture have at least heard the gospel. They may have rejected the gospel, but they've heard it. Okay, this is probably where America is. We are probably in somewhat of an evangelized culture in the sense that, for the most part, you can go through Sterling today, and most people have probably at least heard a gospel presentation, enough to either it reject it or accept it. Okay, but then what happens if there's, churches are doing what God wants them to do, missionaries are doing what God wants them to do, here's the next stage. A culture or a people group becomes reached. Reached means that the majority of the culture is Christian or has a Christian worldview. So much so that it affects the politics, it affects the entertainment, it affects the media. The Christian worldview affects every fabric of the culture. This was probably America 50 to 60 years ago. We were probably a reached culture in that the majority of the people in America at least had a, a Judeo-Christian worldview. It doesn't mean that, that everybody's a Christian. It just means that the culture is reached. Right now, there's probably only one reached culture in our world. That's probably South Korea. South Korea is probably the most Christian nation in the sense that they've got more Christians per capita and they've got a lot of resources and it, and it basically affects their entire worldview. But here's what happens. There comes a tipping point with that reached culture. Once a culture gets reached, there's a tipping point where they fail to continue to present the gospel. They assume that everybody knows the gospel. And what they do is eventually the culture turns to post-Christian. Post-Christian means that there's little, if any, Christian memory. Churches have shrunk. Churches have compromised. There's a whole new generation of people that don't have the categories anymore. A whole new generation of people that don't know the gospel. A whole new generation of people that are biblically illiterate. That is where we are today. We are a post-Christian culture. We've gone from reach to post-Christian. I don't know when that tipping point happens, but here's the ironic thing. Look at where post and pre-Christian are on the scale. 
When it starts back all over again, you can almost say that a post-Christian culture is almost pre-Christian. That we are faced with a culture right now that has very, if, if, very little, if any, Christian memory. So what type of culture are we stepping into in America today? A post-Christian culture. We're going to have to do some work. We can't just assume the gospel. We just can't assume that everybody believes the way we do. We can't assume that everybody's going to accept our message. We're, we can't just assume that if you just talk about Jesus, people know what you're talking about. If you talk about God, they know what you're talking about. If you talk about sin, they know what you're talking about. We may have to do the work of Paul to do what? Open, explain, reason, take our time, move slowly, answer objections, be good apologists. Because we are in a culture that doesn't have the categories anymore. And think about Paul so far. He's planted the church in Philippi. He's been escorted out. Doesn't have very much time to spend with the church in Philippi because he's been escorted out. Now he goes down to Thessalonica. He spends time there. He reasons. He works hard. He doesn't see a huge response. There's a mob riot. He has to leave this church. So what does he do? He writes two letters back, first and second Thessalonians. Think of the way this church was planted. How would you like, I talked about last week, would you want your church planted by a fashionista, a snake girl, and a prison worker? This church was planted by a mob riot. Interesting how churches are planted in Acts. But Paul says this is a model church. This is a healthy church. So what I want us to do is take a quick detour. Go to the book of 1 Thessalonians for a moment. Keep your, keep your finger in Acts 17, but turn over to 1 Thessalonians. Okay, so it's after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I remembered it, General Electric Power Company, then 1 Thessalonians. And if I just confuse you, use your table of contents. That may help you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, Okay, church that I was there for three weeks, three Sabbaths, and then I had to, had to hightail it out of town because there's a mob riot. What type of church did this turn out to be? Think about, what, think about the situation there. If, you, if God had planted a manual in three weeks with the mob riot and your, your church planting missionary had to leave, what type of church would we be? Paul writes back and says, here's the church you guys are. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 9. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, steadfastness of hope, and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and how you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are three things about this church. Paul says, your faith has echoed out. It's known in an entire geographic area. You are an example to all the other churches in your area. Would that Emmanuel be that type of church as an example? But we see three things about this Thessalonian church. First of all, the gospel came to them in power, which produced repentance. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. The gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. So the gospel came to them in power. And what did it produce? 
Look down at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It produced repentance. They turned from their idolatry to serve God. So the first thing about this church is they were a, the gospel came in power, which produced this radical repentance. But secondly, oh, by the way, how did that happen? It happened through the word of God, all that, that work that Paul was doing with the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Secondly, they displayed the fruit of the Spirit. Notice verse 3, Remembering before our God the, the, uh, and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love. And then you go down there in verse 6 and to find out they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. God produced within this church the fruit of the Spirit. Also, thirdly, it was a suffering church. They suffered much affliction. Notice verse 6. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. How did the church start in much affliction? Jason's house gets ransacked. There's a mob. If you go back and read First and Second Thessalonians, you find that the one of the major themes is suffering, persecution. So this is a church that's persecuted, a church that's suffering, but the gospel came in power. They repented, and they experienced the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let's go back to Acts for just a moment. Because Paul and Silas have to leave in the cover of night, and they hightail it down to Berea. And we're going to see a contrast between the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea. Huge contrast. Remember the Jews in Thessalonica? They were doubtful. Some believed. Paul had to spend a lot of time explaining and reasoning and opening. So let's read verse 10 through 15 and find out how the Jews in Berea responded to the word of God. Verse 10, back in Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. What does he do? Every time he goes to a new town, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue, and he finds a different group of Jews. Notice verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitated and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed." Okay, the text says these Bereans were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. The word noble means they were more open-minded. They were more ready to receive. They didn't have any prejudices or preconceived notions about Paul. They were willing to give Paul a hearing. They didn't give Paul such a hard time. Prove it to me, Paul. No, they were ready to receive. And how do they respond to Paul's message? Notice what it says. They received the word with what? All eagerness eagerness they were expectant they were excited they were passionate about receiving the word of god are you like that do you hunger for god's word do you hunger and thirst after god's words do you come each play each week to this place on sunday morning ready and expectant for the very god of gods the lord of lords the king of kings to speak to you through his word are you ready and excited and eager for god to speak to you through the authority of his word 
Psalm 119.18 says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That should be our prayer. Every time we come to the Bible, open my eyes, God. Open my eyes and I may see the wonderful things you have in store for me when I read this word. There are wonderful treasures in this word, Lord. Would you open my eyes, open my heart, give me a passion to receive this word. So they received it with eagerness, but notice what else. It says they were examining the scriptures daily. That word examining is a very interesting word in the Greek language. What that word examining means is to take the scriptures through a cross-examination process like you would put it on trial. Cross-reference, cross-examine, ask questions, dig deeply into the text. Put the text on trial, if you will, to see if what Paul said was true about Jesus. That's an appropriate response to the Word of God. Here's a, here's a newsflash. Don't just believe what I'm saying just because I'm up here as your pastor. Now, I hope that you would have some respect for the authority of pastor and, and hope you, you think I know what I'm talking about. I mean, I've been to seminary, got the degree, I'm, I'm fluent in the original languages, I've got the resources, and so I, I don't want you to think that I don't know what I'm talking about, but don't take for granted that just because I'm up here as your pastor that what I'm saying is true. That's one of the fears I have as a pastor is that you will automatically just take hook, line, and sinker everything I say just because I'm the pastor. You need to do it for yourself. Do you realize the Bible was written so a child could understand it? You need to go home after I've preached and you need to open your own Bible and you need to look in the Bible and say, is what Pastor Sean said true? And if it's not true, you need to reject it. If it's true, you need to accept it. But I'm not the standard. The Scripture's the standard. And that's what the Berean Jews did is they went back and they said, I've got to see if this Scripture lines up with what Paul's saying. So you personally need to take the time in Bible study. You need to go to the scriptures. You need to do the cross-referencing. You need to understand what the scripture says. Now we see a mirror image, don't we? A mirror image on these two cities. In Thessalonica, what's Paul doing? One mirror image, Paul is opening and exposing and, 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 and eagerly trying to show them what the word says, and they're not really receiving it. Mirror image, what are the Bereans doing? They're receiving it, and they're opening it, and they're reading it, and they're examining it, and they're they're devouring it. God's word is powerful and needs to be studied deeply. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 8, 31 through 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do you know the truth that sets you free? By abiding where? In his word. What does it mean to abide? Live, dwell, remain in his word so that you can know the truth that sets you free. Paul gives almost the same exact statement here about the word of God in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, Jesus said, you abide in my word. Now Paul says, let the word abide in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now here's the interesting thing. What are those Jews from Thessalonica that got angry with Paul and and caused the mob riot? They travel 45 miles down to Berea to cause problems for Paul again. Those guys must have been really torqued to travel 45 miles to go down there and give Paul what for. And so Paul is a marked man. Paul has to leave. 
And as we'll see next week, Paul goes to Athens. Paul, uh, T- Silas and Timothy stay in Berea to strengthen that church, to help that church. But Paul's a marked man. He's got to get out of there. And so Paul leaves again and goes to Athens. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking about, okay, this is God's word. I give lip service to it. I know it's God's word, but do I really read it? Do I really study it? Do I live under its authority? Do I allow this word to dwell in me richly? Do, I, do you saturate yourself in this word? And maybe you're here this morning, you're like, you know what? I have no idea where to begin. That sounds great, Sean. You're giving me a guilt trip. I need to read my Bible. Now, I don't want to give you a guilt trip, but I kind of do. That yes, you do need to really read your Bible. Um, it's not me giving you the guilt trip. Holy, it's the Holy Spirit saying you need to read your Bible. But some of you may be thinking, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it sounds so cool to devour and, and to study and to examine and, and to dig d- deeply in this. And, and for some of you, this, this sounds intimidating. I, I don't even know where to begin. Let me give you some direction. I'm going to give you, a, a, I'm going to try to hit all the spots this morning to give you some practical ways to do that. Some of you are smartphone people. Like I'm a smartphone person. Some of us can't live without our smartphones. Some of you love to have apps on your smartphone, okay? Or apps on your computer. Let me give you two free apps for your smartphone that you can do to help you get into the Word. If, if you're an electronic person, the first one you'll see on the screen here is version. version. If we can get that up, yeah. version. it's an app on your smartphone that is free, and it gives you a daily Bible reading, and it has every single version of the Bible that you want. If you want the ESV or the NIV, you can create a Bible reading plan. It pops up with scriptures. You can search in there. And so if you have your phone, and you're sitting waiting in line somewhere, or, or you don't have anything to do, you can pull out your iPhone, or you can pull out your, your, your phone, and, you can, and you, can, you can start getting into the scriptures. So the version is a free app, okay? Another free app is called Explore. This is from the Good Book Company, Explore. This is another free app. It gives you a little bit more of a daily devotion on there. It's like a daily quiet time on your Bible, a little bit more um, in-depth than the the U version, okay? Now, the best overall resource out there, this is Sean's plug, you may disagree with me, is Table Talk by R.C. Sproul's Ministry. Table Talk comes in two ways. You've got a magazine, or you've got an app. It's free app. The magazine costs $23 a year. When you leave this place, I'm going to put about 10 to 12 free, you can take them, or you can look at them, Table Talk magazines. We get this magazine every month. In the magazine, it's a little magazine, you've got articles about different things, but there is a daily Bible reading plan in there that has a day of the, the month, it's got the scripture, it's got an explanation of the scripture, it's got some things to pray about, so it takes you day by day through like a quiet time where you can study the word, okay? So you've got apps, you've got resources. Some of you might like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Let me give you two other ways to do this, okay? I'm trying to hit all the bases here. Commit for the next... Carve out 15 minutes for the next 21 days. Most people will tell you if you do something every day for at least 10 minutes for 21 days, it creates a habit. Do this for the next 21 days, okay? First thing, this is, maybe you're, you're a New Testament person. Take the book of John, the Gospel of John, and with the Gospel of John and a notebook, read a chapter a day. There's 21 chapters in the book of John. And when you read the, the, the first chapter with your notebook, write down your questions, write down your observations, write down your insights, write down some prayers related to that. Um, you don't have to necessarily consult a commentary. Just use you and the scriptures, okay? And after 21 days of doing that, 
you will have a rich way of just diving into the Bible. Another way you can do that is, if you don't like the New Testament, go to the Old Testament, Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters. So take, go for a month. Take a chapter of Proverbs a day, read a chapter a day, do the same thing with the notebook, write down your insights. Now here's the, ki- here's the kicker. Once you write down your insights, once you write down your ideas, go to someone and get those answered. For example, go to your growth group leader. Go to your friend that knows more than you. Go to one of the elders. Go to one of the deacons. Come to me. Come to Pastor Andrew. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm I'm volunteering you older Christians for something that you didn't really sign up for, but it's this. Some of you Christians that have read the Bible and know the Bible for a long time need to step up to the plate and help some that haven't done that. So I'm calling upon you older Christians, and I don't mean older in age, I mean those of you who have been Christians longer, to maybe avail yourselves to be able to disciple, to go one-on-one, or maybe in a group to help those understand the Scripture. So go to someone you trust and ask for explanations. It's amazing how when you actually read the Bible, it's amazing how many times people come to me and say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Have you read it? Well, no, but I don't believe it. Would you just do me a favor and read it and then come back and tell me what you think? So many people... Don't give the Bible a chance because they've never read it. So here's the best thing you can do with the Bible. Here's the best thing you can do. Take all the apps, take all the resources, take all that stuff. And if you never had that, because think about it, for the past 2,000 years we've never had that stuff. How the early Christians do it? What did they have? They had the Bible. So here's what you do, okay? This is is earth-shattering, okay? Pay real close attention. You read the Bible. And then you reread the Bible, and then you reread the Bible, and then guess what? You, you reread it again. The more you read the Bible, it's living and active. The more it's going to come and minister to your heart and to your mind. Be like the Bereans. The Berean Jews in that town, what did they do? They examined the Bible daily, and they received the word with eagerness. Would we be a people that examine the scriptures daily and we receive it with eagerness? Because this is the word of God. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It exposes us and lays us bare before the living God with whom we must give an account. It is absolute truth from cover to cover. We need it to dwell richly in us as we dwell richly in it. And God will change your life through the power of the word. Let me ask you to Bow your heads this morning. Opinion of the Bible. Not what is your stated opinion, but what is your real opinion. Your real opinion of the Bible will show itself in how you actually live on a daily basis with the Bible. Do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Do you follow and obey the Bible? Or do you give lip service to the Bible? What's your opinion of the Bible? So as we go into a time of prayer this morning, ask the Lord to give within you a hunger for the Word. Take advantage of some of these resources. If you have questions, come after the service and talk to me about how I can, how I can get plugged in to, to, to understanding more about the Bible. We want to help. We don't want to leave you here frustrated. We want to leave you here helped. But only God can give you that desire and that, that spiritual hunger for his word. So ask him for that this morning. Ask him to show you how you can get more and more involved in reading, obeying, listening to, devouring his scripture. Spend some time in prayer.
this morning. And if there are any of you here this morning that have questions about your relationship with Jesus, maybe you've come into this place and you've got a huge burden and you just need someone to pray with, someone to talk to. After our last song that we sing, there will be people down here at the front, both men and women, that are willing and ready to pray with you, to talk with you, to spend time with you. I will be down here. Pastor Andrew will be down here. Some of our elders and deacons and their wives will be down here. We don't want you to leave without the opportunity to come and receive prayer, have your questions answered, and just to to get encouragement that you need this morning. So take advantage of that time after we close. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I thank you that we see this example of how, number one, Paul taught, and number two, how the Bereans received And Lord, I pray that we would be like the Jews in Berea, that we would examine the scriptures daily with eagerness, knowing that it points towards you, Jesus, as the ultimate fulfillment of of, of everything. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus, it's all about you and what you've done to buy us back into a right relationship with a holy God. We are sinners in need of grace, and Jesus, you have solved that problem by your cross, your death, and your resurrection. May we be individuals who love and obey your word. May we be a church that loves and obeys your word. In a culture, Lord, that doesn't love and obey your word, may we be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope. May we stand strong on the authority of your word. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.